Hello, everybody. This is Emily Taylor, professor and ophidiophile. You are listening to the So Much Pingle podcast. Happy herping. listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 71. And you'll notice the show was not released on a Sunday, as per usual. Uh, for the next few months, I'm getting them out as time allows while I am temporarily employed. So you can think of the show as either being late for last Sunday or early for next Sunday. And I prefer the latter. This past Sunday, I was down in the LaRue Pine Hills Research Natural Area, also known as Snake Road, and uh, of course, it's always great to see some herps there. But I also go down there in October to hang out with old friends and, uh, you know, to make some new ones along the way. And I ran into so many people uh, over the weekend, and the list is too long to mention everyone, but I do want to give a special shout out to Michelle Pauley, who is doing her master's work at the University of Guelph up in Ontario. Now, Michelle is the first person to recognize me by my voice. That's right. She listens to the show, and uh, she was happened to hear me yakking it up with some folks on Snake Road, and she put two and two together. So well done, Michelle. Uh, it was nice to meet you and talk with you, and I uh, wish you uh, best of luck to you in your research career. Now, before we get to this week's episode, I want to say thank you to all the show's patrons, including Brandon Barasa, who came in at one Patreon level and recently went up to the next level. Thank you so much, Brandon. I appreciate that. And I also want to give a shout out to our newest patron, uh, Christian Dieterich, who made a one-time contribution via Venmo. Uh, thank you so much, Christian. And it was fun hearing about your recent experience with rainbow snakes. Uh, folks, Christian spotted a neonate rainbow snake on the highway while driving 55 miles an hour at night. Uh, which is pretty cool and pretty impressive. So um, fun, to, fun to hear about that. And it got me thinking about my own rainbow snake sighting, which was 25 years ago now. So I haven't seen one since. Maybe I should hurt better. Anyway, thanks to everyone supporting the show. And, you know, I took a peek at some of the show's stats this week. Now, I don't do this often because, you know, it's easy to obsess over numbers. Uh, but guess what? Uh, the show today, 42,000 listens. 42,000. I think that's an amazing number, and I really appreciate everyone's help in getting here to this point. Sarah Lamar is our guest this week, and she is here to talk to Atada. Now, Sarah is here at the suggestion, or perhaps also at the insistence, of Dr. Emily Taylor, who gave us a nice intro at the beginning, and she introduced me to Sarah as well. So, thank you, Emily. So, 90 minutes of Tuatata talk begins right now. Hello there, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a special guest from all the way around on the other side of the world. Welcome to the show, Sarah Lamar. Yes, thanks for having me. 
And you've come on the show to talk about Tuateras today. I have, yes. The lovely Tuatara. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, and uh, I want to talk, uh, get in, get into that, but I want to talk a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate here at Victoria University of Wellington in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, I've lived in Wellington for a while now. Before that, I lived on the South Island in New Zealand, um, which is the other big island, if you're not familiar. Um, so yeah, so I've been here for quite a while now. It's great. Um, I got my undergraduate and master's both in the U.S., which is where I'm originally from. I kind of lived all over, um, so I've had a bit of a, a geographic journey. Um, but my my most recent home and where my kind of education and ecology conservation start was in um, Michigan. Um, yeah, and then from okay. there I've immigrated, and now now I'm here. And uh, yeah, working on Tuatara with uh, kind of the wonderful Nikki Nelson. Uh, yeah, I'm doing kind of conservation projects and, and reproductive research here. So uh, right away, I want to know how do New Zealanders, I think that's what they call themselves. Yeah, maybe Kiwis, maybe yeah. they call themselves Kiwis. That's right. Yeah. How do Kiwis say Tuatara? Yeah, so we would say Tuatara. So Tuatara, tuatara yeah, is it's a, it's a Tereo word. This is actually really timely because Tereo means the language in Maori, which is the New Zealand indigenous peoples. And it's actually Tereo language week here in New Zealand. So fun that we're okay. having this conversation. Um, so yes, it's tuatara. not Tuatara. And it's mm-hmm. not Tuatara, it's yeah. Tuatara. Yeah, you flick the R, exactly. Kind of like Spanish, yeah. but don't trill, just flick the R. Um, and then another thing that people often will sometimes go a little rogue on as well is in Tereo, you don't typically add an S to make things plural. So it's like deer. One deer, many deer. One Tuatara, ah. many Tuatara. Yeah. Those are the main things. If, if you talk like that, then you can fool anyone into knowing what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, I will endeavor to maintain that, that yeah. little syntax of yeah. point during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Just do your best. <laughs> All right. Uh, very cool. Uh, it sounds like... Um, I'm just getting a hint of this, but it sounds like you're also enjoying the the, the culture, the Kiwi culture, and learning about and, yeah. and immer- immersing yourself in that a little bit, too. Yeah, it's been great. Um, immigrating is always a really big thing, um, and especially in the current global environment with the pandemic that's happened yeah. recently and just lots of things. Um, I consider myself very lucky because despite all of that, it's been a very good experience. Um I, I immigrated before COVID, so I guess that, that might be oh, a factor okay. as well. But still, I'd say it's been a all things considered good time to live in New Zealand. Okay. Uh, it's, one of, it's one of the top places I'm keen to visit, as they yes. say. Yeah, keen, uh, I was about really to say. Like Look to... at you, talking talking yeah. like a Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm really keen to, to visit New New Zealand and, yeah, and so um, much. just not even for like herp stuff, just to, mm. to see the, the yeah. country. There's so, so much here that you could do. I mean, you could spend. I still have so much to get to, and I feel like it's just a never-ending list of cool things to do, which is a really good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're in, in Wellington. That's on the North Island, right? Yeah. It's the very southern tip of the North Island. It's the capital. Okay. Not the biggest right. city. Auckland is the biggest city. That's typically if you fly internationally or maybe you've connected through New Zealand or something, that's probably where you've been is Auckland. But the capital where you'll see, you know, the prime minister and all that stuff um, is here in Wellington. Ah. Um, yeah. Okay. Wellington Harbor. Okay. So we're painting a little picture here. Mm-hmm. 
So you've come on the show uh, to talk about Tua Terras, and uh, shout out to Emily Taylor for uh, yes. pointing at you and going, Mike, I want to I want to hear Tua yes. Terra talk. Thank you, so, Emily. Uh, <laughs> so here, here we are. Uh, so let's talk to a terrorist a bit. Um, mm. uh, I, um, most of my audience is uh, familiar with what a, a tuatara is. Nice. Uh, but, uh, let's, let's kind of get into that yeah. a little bit, into the, the meat and bones of that. Yeah. I'm sure you've, you've sort of, you, you've got a preamble. You yeah. Can <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all just yeah. like I'm uh, teaching my herpetology undergrads, um, which look, sometimes it's really good to get the basics down. Tuatata yeah. are really cool for a lot of reasons. Um, if you're a reptile person, you're probably vaguely familiar with them. But if we think about reptiles as a taxa, there's four major orders. You have crocodiles, croc- crocodilia, which is going to be all that kind of stuff, you know, gar rails, alligators, anything that looks like that is in that group. Mm-hmm. Then you have your testudines with your turtles and your, your turtles and your tortoises. Then you have the one that like everybody knows, squamates. That's obviously the most species rich. That's your snakes and lizards basically. And there's a fourth one that kind of always gets forgotten in the reptile order list. It's Rhynchocephalia. And there's only one living member of it and it's the Tuatata. So from an order level standpoint, this is a quarter of all reptile diversity. Obviously not from a species level standpoint. There's you know, eight, 9,000 species of squamates alone. Um, but yeah, so really, really evolutionarily important because they diverged from squamates about probably 250 million years ago, at least, um, and have kind of just been doing their own thing. Rhynchocephalians were really diverse. They were really widespread. They weren't just found in New Zealand. There's, you know, fossil Rhynchocephalians, Germany, in the US, South America, everywhere. But uh, throughout time, basically, we're out-competed or, for one reason or another, went extinct. And there's only one living species uh, now, today, the Tuatata, which is Sphenodon punctatus. There's a couple subspecies of Tuatata. So sometimes in the older literature, you'll see two species of Tuatata referred to. They've now been synonymized. Um, and then it's just a subspecies, a genetically important kind of population. Um, and there's two to three subspecies, depending, honestly what literature you're looking at and, and, and who you're asking. Um, but one, okay. one species, and that's only found here in New Zealand, um, and natural relict populations that haven't been translocated, they're only found offshore. And when we say offshore in New Zealand, we're referring to the small satellite islands. So if you look at a map of New Zealand, a lot of people kind of maybe not even familiar with where it is, we're basically east and south of Australia. So Antarctica is our southern neighbor, and Australia is like our northwest neighbor. And then there's a lot of ocean around us. And then, of course, some smaller Pacific islands as well, like Cook Islands and things like that. Um, yeah. And so there's two primary islands in New Zealand, the North Island and the South Island. And then a bigger satellite one called Stewart Island, Arakiora, off the southern tip. Those th- two to three islands are considered mainland New Zealand. And then there's like a hundred and something satellite islands that range from, you know, a quarter hectare to... 300, 400 hectares off offshore. And those offshore islands are really where you'll only find the relict natural remaining populations of Tuatata today, though they have been translocated to a couple eco-sanctuaries on the mainland. But those are heavily managed and fenced in and things like that. So yeah, in terms of Tuatata, that's their taxonomy, what makes them so special. Obviously, there's a lot of physiological characteristics that make them their own order. They can get into bone structures, primarily what it is from the outside. They look kind of like a juvenile iguana, people often say. I think they definitely could look like a member of Iguana Day if you kind of didn't really know or just saw them. Um, but skeletally, they look quite different. And that's really what makes Rhynchocephalians Rhynchocephalians. Um, 
Yeah, and then now endemic, only to New Zealand, the entire order, just this one species. Okay. And so um, for whatever reason uh, that the rhynchocephalians were outcompeted or something, something yeah. probably outcompeted by yeah. uh, perhaps lizards with... Uh, Dang squamates. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with their highfalutin, high-powered, uh, uh, fancy... Uh, Skulls and and uh, jaw movements and yeah, things. Yeah, kinetic so. skulls and all that crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so and yeah. but the the, the tuatara's were sort of left floating around on New Zealand because you know New Zealand's been detached for quite a while, and, and so they yeah. they became isolated. Basically, know? yeah. Um, Since the last maybe that's glacial, why they hang on, right? Yeah, that's what we think, basically. Since okay. the last glacial maxima about 10,000 years ago, they've just been isolated on these offshore islands. And before that, even, you know, New Zealand was the last major landmass to be settled. Um, we're relatively young island chain. There's not other big competitors here in the reptilian world. Definitely, Tuatara are the biggest thing in New Zealand. Um, so not a huge amount of direct competition that way. Not a huge amount of disturbance in the long, like long term, like when we talk about, you know, the level of basically settlement and urbanization that's been going on in places like you know, Europe or, or South America, Africa, right? Significantly longer than in New Zealand where rel the last major landmass you had to be settled. So kind of just isolated yeah. and we're able to just hang on here for a while, kind of un <laughs> unbothered. Um, and then when the next big thing came along, which for New Zealand was uh, invasive mammals, we almost lost them right away. So yeah, they were, they kind of got lucky, and I think that's why they're the last rank of civilians. Um, and they almost got very unlucky, and we almost did lose them. So, and we're talking about um, col colonization yeah. and uh, wooden ships bringing furry rats. Yes, basically, yeah. So there's kind of two waves of settlement when we think about New Zealand. The first is going to be the arrival of Polynesians, um, which would kind of then go on to become the Maori, kind of, a, you know, forming a separate culture here, uh, the indigenous peoples of New Zealand. And they would have brought with them Pacific rats, which to oh. some iwi are considered taonga or treasured. Different relationships for different iwi, which is basically like a tribe, like a local group. Um, obviously, they don't all have the same traditions and relationships to different animals. But for some, those are really important. The Katanga is a treasured species. But then, of course, Europeans arrived in the 17, early 1800s and brought just every other mammal that you can think of. <laughs> so things went from like, not amazing. We do have mammals now and some humans, you know, some, some, some change to the environment is happening. But of course, at a much smaller scale. And then Europeans arrived um, and brought, you know, we have Norway rats, we have ship rats, we have, they tried to introduce um, mongoose, which just, I can't even imagine what would have happened. There wouldn't be birds. There'd be no cockapo, right? There wouldn't be that great scene of it shagging that person's head on the news or whatever. The mongoose yeah. is just, I can't imagine. They were bought fox. Um, but today, our current invasive mammals that are a problem from, really just directly from that European colonization. We have a couple species of deer, goats, feral pigs, hedgehogs, mm. uh, rats, mice, stoats, terrible, uh, ferrets. Um, yeah, those are the main ones. Rabbits, I guess. They're more habitat destruction, but they're pretty terrible down the South Island especially. Um, okay. Yeah. So all of this results in the uh, tuatera disappearing from the mainland. Yeah, absolutely. They are really evolutionarily naive. There's no native mammals to New Zealand except bats. So everything was used to visual hunters, basically, because birds and other reptiles would have been the only predators here. Um, there's, you know, native New Zealand falcons and things like that. So 
when something would fly overhead or they felt like they were startled or spotted, they just freeze. It's what all the animals you do here, as well as birds. And so when mammals arrived and are scent-based predators, everything just got decimated. Tons of birds went extinct, tons of reptiles went extinct, or were extirpated from islands and, you know, kind of we only have these pockets of things remaining, places where they were basically able to eke out a living, able to survive away from these mammalian threats, often little offshore islands. Um, yeah, and, and that's just because they're evolutionarily naive to scent hunters, basically. And I'll, most things here, including a lot of birds, lay uh, their eggs on the ground to without a nest in the ground. They just lay their eggs and then walk away for about a year. So, I mean, that's like perfect if you're a mammal. It's just like a little protein wow. packet waiting to get eaten. Um a lot of things yeah. here are long-lived as well. So that case-selected lifestyle is going to be a real problem if, you know, you can't even reproduce till you're 12 or 15. It's a long time. Yeah, so they're very, they're very turtle-like. Yes, yeah, in absolutely. In small clutch and uh, mm -hmm. uh, extended adolescence, if you will. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, interesting. Mm. Um, there's a number of things that I think people don't think about is the, the lack of mammals. Yeah, uh, it's... I, I, Wild. I could have swore you had like some monotremes or something. I know I, I it's because Australia, but... we get lumped together. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that, that's on me, but, and just, so it's just bats and that's, that's amazing. But I, I did not realize that the Maori also brought their share of yeah. uh, invasive critters too. Yeah. Yeah. They would have brought that one species of rat for sure. And you know, the different rats species have different hunting styles. So some rats are more arboreal, some rats are more, ground-based predators. So there's kind of a difference in the eco footprint, basically, of the different rat species. But yeah, Europeans weren't the first ones to bring mammals, though definitely um, really went for it and brought just so many. <laughs> it's not yeah. good at all. Really, really no. terrible. Yeah. No. Uh, it, it, there's this, you know, generalization of the Europeans go to other lands and then try to make those lands like the place they came from. Oh, that's you know? exactly how it is in New Zealand. New Zealand was referred to as the Queen's Garden for a while because mm. they brought, they being uh, Pakeha Europeans, European settlers, colonizers definitely brought, um, you know, we have starlings, European blackbirds, the most common bird in most cities, house sparrows, <sighs> uh, you know, pine tree, I don't know, every plant. It's, it's New Zealand, the name of New Zealand conservation these days is, invasive removal and every every taxa plant animal everything we're just trying to undo the damage of colonization before we lose all the indigenous species basically okay now i want to circle back around to this topic um mm. but, but i want to continue a little bit on the on the tuatera yeah itself this crazy little um not lizard yeah uh, <laughs> lizard not lizard <laughs> uh but but there's some also some interesting characteristics too. I mean, I know a little bit about them. I'll tell you why I know a little bit about them mm. because I, uh, as a kid, I had a teacher mentor who would who uh, had some contacts at the St. Louis Zoo. Oh, cool! Yeah, St. Louis Zoo has a small colony of Tuatera. So, yeah. Uh, even in junior high, and this is going back to the 70s, I got to go behind the scenes to see the Tuateras and look in the windows and see the little. Wow. Little tuatara's sitting there on their, you know, outside so their special. burrows and stuff, and they come back a year later and they might have moved a foot or something. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they didn't the move much. Same. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. But so I had some background Very with cool. them, so that some ex half a century of interest, let's just say, in, yeah. in tuatara. So, mm. uh, but I know they have the 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 interesting the parietal eye, the third eye. Yes. Um, yeah. Which I I don't. I mean, do do we know what the third eye does other than maybe some 
some harm, maybe that uh, some light regulation that affects hormones or something. That's um, kind of what we think. Similar to the pineal gland and every other species, probably some circadian rhythm stuff. There's some theories yeah. that so so this third eye is only really visible in like hatchling tuatara because there's a translucent scale on the top of the head where you can see the pineal gland, and that's that third eye. And okay. that scale becomes you know, opaque basically pretty quickly. And so you, you can't see it like in an adult to a toddler or anything. And so they think possibly in addition to circadian rhythm, maybe something to do with light sensing for overhead predators, because that would have been the predators would have been like oh. New Zealand falcons, Moa. I mean, they're not airborne, but you know, things up above to yeah. basically, um, host eagles when those are around. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of a theory, but we don't really know. I mean, the thing about the third eye is it's kind of become a bit of a, like a slogan for Tuatara. There's even a brewery that's um, Tuatara Brewing, the Temple of Taste, the Third Eye is what it's called. It's very much like a, a Tuatara thing. But, you know, a lot of squamates have a much better developed third eye, if you want to call it that, the bridal eye, than Tuatara. Yeah. But I think Tuatara just kind of, like, we've taken hold of that name and we're not letting it go, if that makes sense. but <laughs> Yeah, well, well there's some uh, occult-slash-mystic connotations to a third eye. Definitely. You know? Definitely. O- open, open your third eye. Right. Have this beer and, uh, mm. and uh, you know, become one with the universe. Yeah. True. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's happened at that brewery before, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that was interesting. And the other interesting physiological trait is that the males do not really have a, a penis. They have. It's true. They, they, they have cloacal to cloacal contact to pass. Yeah. Uh, pass sperm to the female. If that's, yeah. Uh, I think that's correct. Correct. Yeah. It's, they're yeah. the only reptile that doesn't have an intermittent organ in the males, basically. So there's no penis or hemipene, and they mate like birds in the sense that it's just cloacal alignment. A, a thing they call the cloacal kiss, which is a pretty terrible term in my opinion, but mm-hmm. that's what it is. Um, basically, where during mating, the males will mount the females and use their really kind of strong back legs. You know, it's how to do a lot of digging and things like that. So they have strong back legs, and they'll essentially use those to twist the female's pelvis and so that their cloaca align really well. And they mate for quite an extended period of time, even though sperm deposition seems to happen pretty quick. And that's probably just because there is no a behavioral adaption to basically not having an instrument organ, just to make sure that sperm enters the cloaca. Because, okay. you know, in birds, was, you see often how the yeah, sperm will leave like- the cloaca, yeah. Flutter, flutter, bang, it's over. Right, yeah. You know, and quick. fertilization is very... Um, kind of spotty. And so I think to yeah. that long, that longer mating is just to try to help prevent against okay. that. But that's just what we think. It's kind of a behavioral you know, thing. So, yeah. Okay. If I had to, if, and I, I we can talk about this for, for hours too, but I, I, I think there's probably the other thing that, that gets me about tuatatas nice. is the, they operate at much lower temperatures than lizards. Yeah. Temperature is, Everything with reptiles, right, really. But in Tuatara, it's everything, everything. Um, they have what we think is, and is often referred to in the reptile literature, as the lowest kind of ideal body temperature to pretty much any other terrestrial reptile. Um, they're outside and active with cloacal temperatures of like 5 to 6 degrees Celsius. So that's not just you know alive. That's like functioning and going on with their day. So they're really, really cold adapted, um, which is great because I think people forget. And and I think because we often think about New Zealand as like 
a region of Australia, which we're definitely not. Um, it's quite cold here. Our southern neighbors, Antarctica. So if you were really, really uh, heat dependent, you would not do well. You wouldn't. You wouldn't have many days that you basically could be out and active. So they're quite cold adapted, which is good, obviously, in light of climate change and global warming. It becomes a real problem because they can get heat stressed a lot easier at yeah. much lower temperatures than you might expect a reptile to. Um, okay. So that can become you know, quite a problem. Combining that with their temperature dependent sex determination, which they have like many other reptiles, it, you know, makes climate change really kind of now an on par threat with those invasive mammals when it comes to Tuatata. Okay. All right. So they're, they're really cool. They're really different. Um, people use the term living fossil, but I don't think yeah. that's probably correct. It's not. No, they just um, look like the old ones, but that they were well adapted you know, 250 million years ago, the old rhynchocephalians. And so the new ones haven't really had to change much because, you know, in terms of mm. geological time, the major evolutionary pressures like mammals and things are new. So there hasn't been a large, you know, evolution or shift in their physiology to the new selective mm. pressures that we see. Um, but those old fossils, you know, they wouldn't be to it. They wouldn't be spent on punctatus. They're not what we would classify as like a Tuatata species today. They're just other rhynchocephalians. Right. So that's why that term living fossil is a little like, well, I mean, sure. They look like old rhynchocephalians, but it's not the same species. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, there's plenty of comparisons with, you know, extinct lizards or extinct exactly. snakes, even like yeah. Titanoboa comes to mind. Well, right. that's a, you know, very different from a garter snake, but nobody calls or a rosy boa or, or right. a boa constrictor, but nobody calls those living fossils. Yeah, it's just another one of the things. I don't know. Someone came up with it, and it's just stuck. And yeah. here we have it—the living fossil. But yeah, it, it can make you think that the species is archaic or maladjusted to the to the modern world, and certainly not. It's a modern species existing in the modern world that just looks like older rhynchocephalians from a fossil. So these these little dudes, these little tuatatas. Um, out in the open, out in the elements, um, mm. crunching on bugs and things like that. And uh, they they live a long time, don't they? I mean, they have a lower metabolism. Yeah, long-lived. Very similar in that way, once again, to tortoises. So there was a new study, I think it was either Nature or Science, one of the big ones, just came out looking, basically a lot of modeling to look at the average kind of age and a lot of these ectothermic species and tuatara we just use data set from one specific island which actually is the subspecies so you know i guess you need to be a little careful on how how much we blanket apply that to other tuatara it's also the coldest and most southern island so that could affect this as well but you know basically they found that there was a less than one percent yearly mortality rate once you hit 100 in tuatara so you can see them living you know, 130 years easily. Um, they've seen reproduction in captivity at over 100. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, when we talk about like what the average age of them in the wild is, we just really haven't been monitoring, I think, the populations long enough to even fully answer that question. But from the models, definitely long, long lived. So, you're telling me that you, you go to an island, you look at a bunch of them out there. Most of them are over 100 or they're 90 or 80 or 120 yeah. or it's just incredibly I think old. once you make it over those major humps of, you know, adolescence and being small, um, because tuatara are cannibalistic and stuff. So, 
So okay. you don't want to be on a heavily populated island and be, <laughs> and be a little tuatara. Um, okay. And, you know, a lot of the offshore islands, they're really extreme environments. There's no standing water on most of them. And like any small island in the Pacific, weather events, extreme, um, all these kind of things. So once you can get to a size where maybe you have a pretty good territory and you're relatively hardy, all things considered, you don't have a pretty good fat store, you're pretty big, less, more, more robust, um, yeah, your mortality rate seems to be, you know, negligible in terms of, of senescence. It becomes then an issue wow. of trauma or predation or, you know, something like that. Something a little okay. bit more. Stochastic Yeah, basically. Um, is there a difference in thermal regulation compared to, you know, uh, squamates? Is there a difference in, in, in that with this, these creatures that are operating at lower temperatures, but they're probably still craving sunlight? And Yeah, definitely. We think of them as primarily nocturnal, but I would say they're more like crepuscular or just really active whenever they need to be, like most reptiles. You're, you're out there on a sunny day, um, and you'll see all the heads like out of the burrows or like a back leg out of a burrow. <laughs> they're like, I want to be okay. protected, but like, I'd like to get a little sun. Um, uh-huh. Definitely. If it's a sunny day, they'll be, they'll be out trying to thermoregulate. They dig their own burrows or do they use? Other Most of the time burrows? offshore, it's going to be seabird burrows. Um, oh, so okay. the main island where I do my research and where most, most to research comes from, this island hosts 1.83 million nesting pairs of, uh, fairy prion, which is just a, a smaller seabird. Um, every fairy, fairy prion. Mm-hmm, yeah. Every wow. spring. And so that's just one of the seabirds that comes to the island, right? There are, there's, uh, sooty shearwaters, uh, TT, you know, there's other, other seabirds as well. But okay. so just that alone, you can imagine there's millions and millions of burrows on this island. <laughs> if okay. you walk off trail, the ground truly will collapse underneath you. You, there's a certain way you can walk. There's certain places you put your feet in the mouth of the burrows to prevent, because these burrows are all full, right? Once the, once the fairy prime leave, that is just housing. There's a lot of housing. Tuatata don't really need to dig their own burrows. Um, they're very okay. strong. They're capable of digging, but it's primarily going to be seabird burrows that they inhabit okay. on most islands. Do, do they eat the seabirds, like hatchlings oh, yeah. or something too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, okay. that's kind of the main source of these, you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids. These really rich nutrient dump is the seabirds on a lot of uh, these offshores. And the specific seabirds will vary based on what island you're on. Um, of course, cause you know, they, they exist because New Zealand is basically a long skinny Island. There's a real latitudinal gradient. So there's a size gradient in the Tuatara. There's a gradient in the seabirds that nest at the different temperature bands. Um, and so there's a bit of variation mm. along it, but in general, seabirds are thought to be kind of the big money item when it comes to diet and Tuatara. And there's actually, we have a study that's in, um, final review now looking at how much, on this one island that um, a fairy prion or seabirds, marine signature, basically, we could find in these Tuatara populations. Um, because when we were starting to consider these translocations back to the mainland in these eco-sanctuaries, or maybe restoring Tuatara to their previous habitat, the mainland doesn't, most places, doesn't have seabirds anymore. We don't have seabird um, colonies. And so we uh. kind of were like, oh, you know, how, how important is this? Basically, how much of their diet is this? Um, and, you know, we found, I'd say, a not insignificant portion, about 40% of the diet of a lot of our tuatara um, in the end of the austral summer had a very heavy marine signature, which would be seabirds because these islands are cliff-bound. So they're not going to be, like, 
getting fish or scavenging the beach or anything like that. Um, hmm. So this is interesting. So there's this there's this food chain from plankton, not up to sea seabirds, yeah. but plankton up to to tuatata. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting, interesting then because we have this kind of the two different ways that tuatata, based on the size, their size, the things that they can get their mouth around, right? Like smaller ones, juveniles, females. Maybe the biggest thing they can eat is another tuatata. Because um, ah, okay. everything else would be maybe skinks or smaller birds. A lot of we have a lot of big insects in New Zealand, but um, you know that's kind of it. And then when you get above a certain size and you can fit your mouth around, uh, or you know, uh, I guess an, uh, a seabird egg. But then when you get big enough to fit your mouth around a, a, a fledgling seagull or um, seabird, these big males, they're getting this massive boom of nutrients and fat store, and their body condition is significantly higher than smaller tuatata. And it's probably this very related system, you know, basically of making it above a okay. certain size, which of course is going to help in your ability to um, survive right. the real. And and you you don't have to catch, you don't have to eat uh, a nestling every week. No. Uh, yeah. You might just get. A couple a year. Probably, yeah. I mean, maybe that's the enough, one. Who knows, right? right? Like, yeah. their metabolism, so slow. Uh, you know, ectotherms can survive on so little compared to mammal diet studies and things like that. Um, yeah. Right. right. And and uh, this is something that um, uh, brings me back to something that uh, happened with uh, with Dr. Emily Taylor. Uh, mm. We were at, at a research site, and there was a rattlesnake you know, preying on a, a giant kangaroo rat, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that might be one or two meal, one of the one or two meals a year that snake gets, but it, yeah. it you know, basically uses every bit of that. And that, that, that rat is not like, you know, a huge caloric load. I mean, there's, no, there no. is X number of calories in it, but it's not like eating a triple cheeseburger from Hardee's. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it, it does contain calories, but, it, but it's not, like, you know, something uh, obscenely large, but mm. it utilizes every stinking bit of that to not only live, but to, you know, maybe grow a little and, and reproduce. So right. I think yeah. it's amazing how, how uh, efficient uh, reptiles can be at, at, at food utilization. Yeah. So. And especially island reptiles. There's a lot of studies that have found that island populations of certain reptile species, I think mostly snakes is where a lot of this research is done. Um have often longer hind guts than their continental conspecifics. So they're, you know, adapting even more and more to making the most out of all these meals because island life is so unpredictable. Um, just yeah. a huge amount of adaptation in ectotherms to, you know, the dietary insecurity, basically. Okay, so we kind of bounced off this a little bit, but why don't you talk about, why don't you tell us what your your research is yeah. with, with these two atatas? So, um, like, like most research projects, it started one place and is now somewhere very different, <laughs> uh, which I think is kind of the beauty of it. Um, so basically my research looks at male reproductive fitness and it's a whole organism approach to that. We started by characterizing sperm into a teta for the very first time. Um, there had been one study that had been done back in the nineties from some sperm that was excised from the testes of a, a deceased tuatata. Um, but that was it. So that's never gone through post-testicular maturation. It's also a very small sample size, basically one individual. I think they had two maybe, but most of the samples were from one individual. So, you know, just not necessarily a ton to go off. And when we talk about conservation, um, always in the back, I think, especially these days, 
of a lot of conservationists' mind is the need that at some point for maybe cryopreservation, assisted reproductive technologies, artificial insemination, like these things are becoming more and more um, used in reptiles and amphibians, which were primarily, I mean, we're way behind the ball in in herpetofauna compared to mammals and even birds when it comes to assisted reproduction. um, Yeah, I mean, look what they do with cows. Yeah, uh, yeah, for, exactly. For crying, for crying out loud. Right. And so, and we yeah. didn't even know, you know, this is this this species is the only one of an entire reptile order of four. And we didn't even know what sperm looked like. But even yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that's where we started. Um and we did a pilot study looking at that. Um and looking at how the sperm basically structure and movement, just to try to get some idea of what even, you know, was an average amount of viability in a sperm sample. Like is there a huge amount of variation? Why, you know, do they think they need to mate multiple times? This also has a lot of really good implications for things like translocations. Um, because if we're taking a bunch of males and we don't know that maybe there's a huge degree of variation in their fertility, we might be moving individuals that are just never going to reproduce. Um, which has, I think, a lot of implications, you know, for animal welfare and, and, and time and resources and all of these things. So, that's kind of where we started. And then throughout this journey, we've really taken it now where um, to doing diet, which is what we've kind of touched on a little bit, looking at how that could interplay with our mating males, our bigger males and our smaller males and our females, seeing if we can pe- piece out maybe some of the physiological reasons for differences in viability that we do see. Um, looking at right now, we're building leukocyte reference intervals for field screenings because that's one of the things we do do when we translocate to Atara is make blood smears. Um, really cheap thing that you know scientists have been doing in a lot of species for a long time. Basically, you take a drop of blood, you make a blood smear on a slide, you can look at it under a microscope once you stain it, and look at the white blood cell profile. So it's a handy, okay. pretty quick, pretty rough and tumble way you can just do in the field. So you know anything once you know what the blood cells look like um, to see if you have like signs of obvious infection or do you have to establish a blood, like a baseline of what yeah, normal is? For exactly. Them? But that's never been done <laughs> into okay. a thought. So that's what we're doing right now. I'm running the models on it, um, incorporating a bunch of different historic smears because we have blood smears from tons of translocations. So running that, trying to get, pick up on a lot of the things that people forget about, like circadian influences on that, because there will probably oh. be a circadian rhythm element to the models and things like that. So we're running those right now, which is really cool as well. So we can have some island-specific, maybe even population-specific reference intervals um, and understand better the circadian influence on that. So we can basically interpret those field blood smears for individual selection and individual health in a more meaningful way, um, which is obviously hugely important, um, especially in the wild, because the ones we do have, um, there's a couple that have been reported, but they're from captive populations in like um, areas that are like pretty well thermoregulated artificially and things like that. So it gets a little like, how transferable is this basically? Um, and then the last thing we're doing is basically combining, you know, these these diet models, these white blood cell models, and these sperm quality models to look at the different aspects of male fitness, the trade-offs between, you know, testosterone and immunity, male phenotype, kind of seeing what truly is a good, I put quotes around that, male um, and, and that will, you know, basically improve our ability to select males for translocations and in the future, if needed, artificial uh, you know, reproductive technologies. Ideally, we never need to use them, but I think it's always a thing, especially in yeah. light of climate change. Uh, you just never know. Yeah, and if you if you wait until you need them to develop them, you are five years behind. So, right. Yeah, it's a really cool project. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to do a blood smear, 
Yeah. Um, and, and I assume it's it's fairly trivial to get a sperm sample, but you all, it, mm-hmm. there's other aspects to an animal like this. You just can't cut them open and look at their entrails no. or their ovaries. No, no, no. Um, so, so there's some things you can do, but there's other things that are harder to do in yeah. terms of like studying the female, the ovaries, and the cycles of when the ovaries are are you know at the, at their peak for reproductive. Yeah use or whatever you want, how you want to say that. Mm. Um, but I, I don't know how you study those things. Maybe you don't get to study them. Yeah, it's a real consideration. Anyone who works with a basically protected species, you know, understands that trade-off where it's like we need this information in order to better protect them or better manage them maybe. But the things that we can do to an animal have to be very heavily considered and especially weighed in by the local iwi because Tuatara are a town gather, a treasured species. So we need to be really careful and thoughtful and meaningful about the samples we collect. So every sample we take and every um, study basically that we undertake as well. It's all done in conjunction with EWI and the Department of Conservation and Animal Ethics to make sure that we're getting the most out of every sample. And if there's an easier, low impact way to do it, let's find a way to do it that way. But yeah, I mean, we definitely, we don't euthanize any animal. There's no inside looking of anything. Everything right. is, um, yeah, when we consider male phenotype, we're, we're really working on external phenotype. When we look at sperm, we're interrupting mating and just collecting a sperm sample. Um, oh, blood, okay. you know, pretty standard to take from reptiles from the tail. Um, can do that pretty easily, yeah. low impact as well. Um, and from that, we can get things like testosterone, um, which can tell us a lot about the male reproductive cycle. Um, yeah. Yeah, cortisone Things as well. Like yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. then when we do diet, we use stable isotope, which we did from blood, but actually found a better way to do it or a lower impact way to do it just using nail trims, um, which, yeah. you know, it, and, and basically we, in this diet paper, then we can, we compare that to the whole blood samples from the same individuals. We did a subset kind of duplicate sampling, figured out that conversion factor. And so now that is another way that people can in the future look at, at diet and tuatara a little bit more informed, um, uh, you know, and once again, not have to take blood, which is great because there's a limited amount of blood you can take and, and you don't want to kind of use up your, your blood <laughs> on something if there's an easier way to get it. Right. So yeah. yeah, definitely. You're right. It's a consideration. Everything is carefully considered. Yeah. <laughs> Everything down to the, the milliliter. I'm like, you know, or the micro leader. Yeah. I'm like, oh God, I need that drop. <laughs> wow. I and I suppose if there are occasionally dead uh, a dead to a tire from accident or misfortune or whatever, you, you want to get your hands on it if possible. Yeah. But is, is, are there also you 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 call, you refer to this as a, a tonga, mm-hmm. a, a treasure mm-hmm. um, to to the the native people. Yeah. Uh, and you used the term iwi. I don't not sure what that means. Basically, but, a tribe, uh, like the, a, a local group. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so do they have a say in that kind of thing too? Absolutely, uh, yeah, they have a say so. in all of that. Um, and it's also very hard. I, I've only ever seen one, two, I think, deceased Tuatara uh, out in the open. They'll typically go back to their burrows to die or be scavenged pretty quick because oh, these okay. are, you know, yeah, these are pretty rough places. But um, yeah, in terms of everything we do with an animal, it goes through the Department of Conservation and the EUE before we kind of get to make those decisions. I mean, we definitely in our permitting have a protocol for if something were to happen, but because it's so heavily considered, I mean, it would be a pretty wild situation if an animal were to die on our watch. And I don't even want to think about that. So, and yeah. they're so hard to find um, deceased in, in the, in the wild because these islands are so rough that they're, they're gone before I know they're gone. They've been eaten by something else or dragged away or yeah. whatever. I see. 
So and it's interesting too. This is this is not like studying water snakes Mm-mm. or or um, or box turtles or something. They're which impart a certain uh, because they're fairly common. Yeah. There's a casualness to yeah. no. the research that you don't have. Everything is sort of fraught with <laughs> this heavy, uh, yeah. uh, you know, this heavy load on your head. A, a little yoke bit. of responsibility. Yeah, and, it's like you yeah. know we're. We're good at what we do and we're confident. So you're not you're not super nervous, but there's definitely it's not like, you know, garter snake, water snake, where you're like, well, it'll be okay if there was to be a, you know, something something you can't predict. I don't even want to think about it, and so I just don't think about it. I just go, nope, it'll never happen. <laughs> and if it does, we will cross that bridge. We have the permitting, we'll figure it out, we'll have conversations. Yeah. But yeah, I mean it would just be but not on your watch, right? Nope. Nope, hasn't, okay. and I'm just going to say that, and I'm not even going to knock on wood. <laughs> I'm not going to right yeah. my noggin. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, very good. So you're interesting with things that you're able to study, and that's yeah. important. Uh, future, what we call future-proofing, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. That's the name uh, of the game. And uh, probably anything else you can eke out of studies, you're trying to get oh, yeah. other data as well, I'm sure. Yeah, we have you know all the records from all the Tuatana that have ever been tagged or whatever you know you keep all your files all your spreadsheets it all goes into the repository and and someone else will get something out of it you know that i didn't even didn't even think about when i was collecting all my standard measurements that we just collect on every individual we handle you know there's so much there that is always being used in big meta studies but like you know that that aging study that we just talked about that was how many different people's you know surveys that they were doing for other things on on this particular island with tuatara but then you know years later that's able to be used by another researcher to, to figure out senescence, basically, or get an idea, build a model of potential senescence. So, there's also this model of senescence in researchers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you could theoretically have a researcher who then then has uh, children who grow up to be researchers who end up studying the same uh, Tuatara dynasty, you know, the same patch. <laughs> yeah, and, and then then their the, their children could do the same thing, and and you could study can. You know, conceivably, three generations of scientists could study. Would make interpreting one notes probably a lot easier because sometimes I read shorthand <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what the heck this person was talking about. <laughs> Can we standardize some of this stuff, please? Wow. <laughs> yeah, the wow. spreadsheets get a little some wild things in there sometimes. Wow. Okay, and and we know that the Tuatara's were on the main yeah. islands, mm-hmm. but we do we know much about? I mean, were they all over the stinking place, or were they just? Along the coast, or do we do we know? We don't know fully. There's there's records from it would be like sub fossil remains, or maybe like middens, right? Like like diet uh-huh. middens, like bone piles from like early Maori settlements, or things like that, or, or yeah, sub fossils. So and that's they're pretty widely distributed across New Zealand. But um, basically, it just like wasn't long enough ago that there's like a huge fossil record of them, and then it wasn't recent enough that people really wrote it all down. So it's kind of in that sweet spot of they seem to have been pretty widespread, not just along the coast. But it's okay. a, I think a question that we don't like fully know the answer. But and then that leads to more questions like what did those two to Atara eat? Exactly. Yeah. And what did that environment look like when they lived there? I mean, it's just so. So fraught with questions um, that are really important, especially when we consider that most of the conservation goals in New Zealand all have to do with basically walking back all this colonial damage that happened yeah. and is still ongoing, of course, as well. Um, so we we want to get things back to a more basically indigenous state um, when it comes to the environment. And, you know, if you don't fully understand what that was, a lot of places, then 
that raises a question as well, right? Yeah. Well, and this is sort of, um, uh, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, and so we're kind of circling back around to this, just the idea of of, of doing just that, just trying to um, eliminate so many uh, invasive mammals. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about, I know that the two tuatatas were on the islands and then uh rat rats have been removed from a number of islands yeah if not a lot of the islands, islands are predator free we call them now yeah which had to be rats and goats and whatever you mm. know else was on earth ferrets, but yeah. that had to be a, a, a huge undertaking how does one de-rat an island Ooh, yeah huge undertaking predator removal is something that new zealand is like world famous for <laughs> they are good oh, really? at getting rid okay. of predators yeah if you ever see those Com- I remember watching this. I think it was in my undergraduate class. It's like a pretty comical video in hindsight of basically New Zealand rangers, which are um, a Department of Conservation rangers, have put these collars on goats. They call them Judas goats. And so goats ah. are really social. And so they basically wipe out a, I don't know what you call a group of goats, a herd, I'm not sure, except herd for one, goats. put a tracking collar on it. It would go find other goats. And then they would track it from the air in a helicopter and shoot all those goats. And then the Judas goat would once again have no friends and it would go and find more friends. And yeah, so Kiwis are really good at getting rid of invasive mammals. It's kind wow. of an art here. Um, it's a, a combination with your things like rats, stoats, and ferrets of poison and then physical trapping. Um, goats are easy. You yeah. Shoot them from a helicopter. Pretty big, right? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Things like, like rats and, and stoats and ferrets are... Rats and stoats are kind of the two yeah. big ones I think any, of. That. Any mustelid must be do- extremely difficult. Oh, yeah. Remember. It's like, you know, there'll be islands that are predator-free and then a stoat swims to it and they'll sp- have to spend like the better part of a million dollars to get rid of one stoat because it's like, you know, this island is like animals have been put there that were extirpated that are really genetically valuable and there's been so much work and it's like you can't let these things get a foothold. So all the islands that are predator-free – We'll have pretty intensive trapping networks set up all over them of different baited traps, like physical traps. Um, and those will be checked all the time by the dock rangers. And that will be kind of the first line of defense. So there's, if I understand this right, then uh, you can declare an animal rat for, or an island rat free, let's say, mm. stowed free, mm. but you don't rest on your laurels. No. You still maintain and monitor yeah. for presence all, all these predator free islands okay. are going to have intense trapping networks so it's it's ongoing expensive endeavor absolutely and it's a nationwide endeavor too something that's really interesting is there's a kind of a big push by the department of conservation along with a ton of uh, localized stakeholders and interest groups called predator free 2050 which is a push to actually remove all the the uh, major mammalian predators. So this is a little bit different than the the offshore reserves are truly mammal free. So that's everything, not even mice, you know. But then the um the predator free twenty fifty the mainland is major mammalian predators. So that's gonna be like your rats, your stoats, your ferrets, things like you know feral cats. That's a lot touchier of an issue. Mainland oh isn't boy. addressing that because <laughs> that's that's like a firestorm in and of itself. Also mice. Uh, that's they're like insanely tricky to get rid of and and. You know, obviously, invertebrate people would definitely be calling them a predator. But, yeah. you know, for other things, perhaps less of a worry. But the major mammalian predators are being targeted by this Predator Free 2050, which is a massive multi million dollar multi agency goal to essentially wipe out the major mammalian predators from the entirety of mainland New Zealand in an effort to begin the restoration of all of these 
incredible bird and reptile species on more than just these offshore islands or these nature reserves to, you know, to introduce basically bird song back into the bush. Um, And so it's a really cool project. So other than cat lovers, um, (laughs) which, you know, um, it's, it must be the same around the world with, with these, I don't know what, I think maybe it's, I think maybe they're infected with toxoplasmosis and, and so they're, they have a virus in their brain that's, Making them very, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I'm going to put that forward as my theory. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, other than the the, the, the cat people, mm. I like I'm going to call them cat people. Cat uh, people. Other than that, are are the Kiwis behind this effort? I yeah. mean, as, as a as a, a people, as a nation, yeah, are they behind I'd say this a effort? Huge amount of support. Do they yeah. do they get it? I think most people get it. I think uh, New Zealand. One doesn't have like a ton of people, <laughs> right? Like 5 million or something people. But also uh, nature is such a huge thing. Not even, even if you're not a nature lover, like it's such a huge part of the economy here. Such a huge ah. part of tourism. Like tourism is what keeps New Zealand in so many ways going. And people come here for primarily, um, yeah. you know, nature. And so even if you're not interested from like, you know, a, an ecological standpoint, um, yeah, I think I think there's a huge just understanding that uh, of the amount of damage that is being done or has been done. And so basically if you're in a position where you have the I mean for lack of a better term the spoons to worry about it, right? Like you're not eking out your living day to day. If you have the luxury like we do of being able to go, oh, I really want to focus and worry about, you know, the ecology of an area and I have the the maybe money to change little things in my life to help that or I can trap in my backyard. If you have the bandwidth for this, people here in general are really, really invested. And there's a huge okay. groundswell behind it. How do they feel about tuatatas? Good. I think tuatata Ooh, are... I use the S. Tuatata. <laughs> tuatata are, are lucky, right? They benefit from being kind of a charismatic megafauna. So while in general, nobody in the grand scheme of things hears about reptiles, and reptiles are always like the last taxa on everything now um, in mm-hmm. terms of assisted, you know, reproduction, money, money on conservation per species, all these kind of things. Like it's pretty dire, but Tuatara are one of the ones like they have a little bit of like a celebrity effect. So, okay. Right. Like, especially in New Zealand, because every other reptiles are going to be, they're all lizards. So that's going to well, be. It's hard to compete with cockapos and, and the, yeah. the kiwi bird. Oh, the birds get it all. Itself, Still right? don't get um, me wrong. Um, hard to compete with those. I know. They're so, kiwi? They're so I mean, cute. I don't, and, and we're called oh. kiwi, you know, New Zealanders are called kiwis. Like it's, it's like yeah. very, uh, yeah. So, but when it comes to reptiles, Tuatara are going to be the best, like known in New Zealand. You know, people kind of know what they are. They're on. They used to be on the old nickel. Like, like, like people know and they care. Um, and so they benefit from that. Whereas a lot of the other reptile species, like geckos and skinks, I mean, people just don't even know they exist. Um, except for people like me who want to come there to see them. Right. Yeah. Except for people who like really like reptiles, but for everybody else, you know, it's just kind of to its how to are, if you're going to care about a herpetofauna in New Zealand, probably what you're going to care about. And so they benefit from that, but okay. still. Way so let me ask you game. this then, can, uh, I, a Joe tourist go, uh, fly to Auckland and, mm. and see, yeah. Tuatara? You can see it. Tuatara. So a lot of the eco sanctuaries have them and those are basically translocated population. So, um, okay. so I live in Wellington. So I think of, of Zealandia, which is a really cool project here, basically in the central business district, but 
just a little bit up. So it has a big valley. And this is something that's been made, an area that's been made predator-free through an, a massive effort. And then it's been fenced in um, with a massive fence with a baffle. You know, cats can't get in, stoats can't get in. They do trapping, you know, all around. And then it, back in this area, they've reintroduced a lot of native birds that you won't see in the other bush because of predators and tuatata and their free-ranging populations. Oh. There's other animals as well, you know, special and bugs. Can, and, can you go in there or do you mm-hmm. have to look in the fence? or? Oh, okay. Yeah, you can right. go and... Yeah, and there's nice. also one island that you can, that's in Wellington Harbor, that there's a small translocated population that you can, like, go on. You probably want to camp or something overnight, because not, it's not a huge population, and they're pretty kind of shy. But, yeah. But I you mean, could do it. But you could do it. Okay. And, of course, it's monitored by docks, so and I won't get any bad ideas. Um, but, yes, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, that's it, though. All the other, the big populations of Tuatara are all going to be on these islands um, that are right. reserve-only, permit-only no one goes, no visitors, but yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. And I suppose uh, there's a, I don't know if there's really a tourist industry for the, for uh, Tuatara, but I'm sure there is for Kiwi and yeah. Kakapo oh, and absolutely. other, other bir- uh, uh, seldom seen birds. I'm sure totally. there's lots of birders that uh, come to. Mm-hmm. Birding your, is your, huge here. It's, our, it's the main that, wildlife so. here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, and it just, uh, uh, I'm just curious about Kiwi. Uh, are they uh, doing okay? Are they hanging in there? Or? Yeah, depending on the species, they're doing all right. A lot of the same threats. Um, they're long-lived. They lay their you know eggs in the ground. They're flightless. They're also super naive. They get that like goofy kind of bumbling, cute energy because you walk up to them and they're like, oops, oh my goodness, and like fall over. And you're like, how did you survive oh, until now? <laughs> um, Every time I see a video of them, I'm just I I can't even believe it's a bird. I it, know. It's like, it, <laughs> Is that thing from this planet? Because I know. it doesn't. They're it so seems so. Cute. Uh, and so, my, wow. So ostensibly, I could I could see my tuatera, maybe a few skinks and a gecko or two, which would be cool. Totally. And maybe a kiwi if I was. Absolutely, you could see a kiwi. Yeah, Zealandia as well. They have okay. kiwi. Take a night tour, or if you go to Raikiora, Stewart hmm. Island, um, the island the, off the foot of the South Island, the. Some people call it the third mainland, whatever. Um, it, yeah, that's where I saw my first kiwi in the wild. It's just a wild population of them. Kiwi are actually coming back pretty well, um, depending on the Ugh. species. A lot of places, which is really cool. You can go, there's a mountain range outside of Wellington called the Rimatakas. Um, it's not predator-free. It is trapped, you know, they're keeping numbers down. But, I mean, it's it's just mainland New Zealand. And, um, yeah, at night now you can hear the call of the kiwi in it. It's oh, wow. really cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And and so all of this comes with um, all of the work you're doing. Mm. And I, I want to touch on this a little bit as well. But the first thing I want to, that comes to mind is along with everything, all the research you're doing, it's all wrapped. It, it has this island biogeography yeah, wrapper. <laughs> everything here does. Yeah. All right. Which to me is is also very cool. You know, I I, I read Song of the Dodo. I've been yes, to Song a of number Dodo, of yes. islands <laughs> in Baja California and seen dwarfism and gigantism cool. at play. Yep. So it's fascinating to me, and I'm sure that's that's sort of the backdrop for what you do. It is. It, yeah. It figures features. It's a feature in in everything you do, right? Yeah. Even on the smaller scale within New Zealand, we have you know Tuatara being the species that I care the most about, um, you know, exist on basically isolated since the last glacial maxima on these offshore islands that exist on a latitudinal gradient, a temperature gradient. And so even within the greater, you know, concept of Gondwana land and then New Zealand, we have these 
sub-mesocosms, basically, microcosms of those islands and how we see um, the different selective pressures and size play out you know, all of these concepts play out even on these smaller microcosms. Like we do see a size yeah. gradient in Tuatara as well on the different islands. We see. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's, mm. it's just everything. Island biogeography bio is the name of the game here. There's, there's nothing that isn't affected by it. Yeah. So uh, tell me about New Zealand itself. Is it a, uh, was it part of a, Gondwana land, yeah. a greater or a chunk of that. Yeah, so it's not it necessarily uh, what they call a, a, a an oceanic island or a volcanic island. It didn't just rise above the waves one day. No, uh, it, it is it part of Gondwana land. It broke off and drifted away. Yeah, okay. so but it, we are... it, it broke off and drifted away with a certain amount of flora and fauna already riding along with it. Yeah. And okay. that's why there is a lot of stuff here that isn't necessarily endemic, um, but is native because we were part of Gondwana land. Um, but yeah. it is obviously, we're a very volcanic place. We have fault lines that run through us. We like, it's a very uh, geologically active area. Um, and there are, you know, volcanic offshore islands and like all this kind of stuff. It's, it's just classic, like Pacific Island, crazy, crazy Island chain. Okay. <laughs> it's an archipelago, right? Like, and it's just, there's something, there's a little bit of everything. All the things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we were part of Gondwana land. Yeah. Wow. I mm. find that fascinating. This is um, one of my favorite places uh, that I've ever been is in, an island uh, in the, uh, Baja, California, mm. um, Isla Catalina. Oh, uh, I've heard that. I uh, always see that in every like cool research paper. That's the yeah. study site. It, it's an, it's an oceanic island and it came out of the water. So it had nothing. Whoa. Everything that lives there came there either, you know, uh, flew there or rafted there. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just one of my favorite places. It has a rattlesnake with no rattle. Oh, uh, that's cool. Which is cool. So there's all these cool, every every lizard there is endemic. Everything that got there, yeah, it got there by rafting from somewhere else. So yeah. It's, it's this really cool idea of, uh, it, you know, it doesn't have a full herpetofauna. It has a limited herpetofauna. You know? Yeah. And, Does and it have amphibians of any and, kind? Uh, right. No, no, yeah. there's no, there's nothing like that. So yeah, which is, I think that's a really cool thing about New Zealand is we do have, yeah, arguably yeah. more. I mean, well, no. See, I was going to say more unique than the Tuatara are the amphibians, but that's not true because Tuatara are their own order. But the Leopomatid frogs, which are the only amphibians yeah. here, native amphibians here, we have invasive ones from Australia, are um, yeah, arguably almost just as special. <laughs> Depending who you yeah, ask. Yeah, so the, and those those came with the uh, with New Zealand as it broke away. I, I, I imagine assume. so. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, definitely wouldn't okay. have floated here. And they're um related to that one Leopomatid escape. Might even be a Escaphus trui, the tailed frog in California. The tailed frog. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. um their mm -hmm. like closest relative or whatever. So yeah. yeah. So that's crazy. I know it's some weird. I'm not super familiar on the, all the fossil records of the frogs and stuff, but there's some pretty cool amphibian stuff here um, that I've been lucky enough to work with the late Phil Bishop on and stuff. So very cool. Awesome. You mentioned uh, in your Twitter feed about mm. a different paper. Oh, viruses. Uh, on viruses. <laughs> this uh, is another just side project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and this, it, you have every opportunity to to get gather data, so why not, right? That's it's honestly that's the thing. Yeah, these these individuals in this are the same individuals in all the other studies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you get as much as you can out of uh -huh. the material you have, but this is a paper on the cloacal virome. 
Yeah. Uh, which I guess is the, the what keywords. The, eh? Yeah. Uh, it, this is published in the virology. Um, yep. 49 novel viral species live in the Chloe. I'm going to say cloaca in the cloaca of Tuatara, <laughs> yeah. which is amazing. So there's all this um, interesting things going on uh, in yeah. the cloaca. Yeah, lots of lots of things happening. We're down there a lot for the sperm, and now for these. Um, this is really cool because this work is done with Gemma Goffigan, uh, Dr. Gemma Goffigan, who's at the University of Otago, who actually has a joint appointment with the University of Otago and the um, and ECR, which is basically like the environmental. Oh, something research. I should know that acronym. Sorry, Gemma, that I don't. Um, but basically, she is really cool because she, in many ways, headed up our COVID genome sequencing here in New Zealand. So she's like, Ooh. she's the virus queen. Um, okay. And she pioneered this basically transcriptome. Handy to have those people around. <laughs> More than ever now it is. Yeah. And okay. she pioneered this form of viral discovery using basically transcriptome mining, which is a, like a method that she basically pioneered. Um, so it's really cool. And this, this study that I'm on is co-authored with one of her, her PhD students is actually that the student Stephanie Waller's first, first author. So congrats, Stephanie. Um, really cool. What a cool, cool. one I think to do. Yeah. Basically we, you know, to a, a really kind of great basal amnio for considering viral diversity, um, something that we until recently, haven't necessarily thought that much about viruses and viral discovery. And there's a huge amount of implications for medicine, understanding the virus, uh, evolution of viruses, all this stuff, if we knew more about them. And if we knew more about um, basically how viruses have changed throughout time and across different lineages. Um, and as basal amniotes, Tuatara are great for starting to see this division in, in viral diversity from basically non-amniotic to amniotic things. You know, these are the only ectothermic uh, amniotes. So really interesting from so that perspective. when you say basal amniotic, basal amniotic, can you give me a, a the nickel description of that? Yeah, term? basically when we say basal amniote, when we say, uh, I'm sure you probably know this part, but for amniotes, we mean things that have the amniotic membrane, which is basically things that have an egg of some kind. So fish and amphibians, non-amniotes. Birds, reptiles, mammals, we're amniotes. And so that's like a primary division in right. vertebrate taxa. Well, I mean all life, but especially vertebrate taxa. And then reptiles are the basal amniotes because they're the only ectothermic um, amniotes. So everything everything else is an amniote is warm-blooded for lack of a better term. Right? I know endothermic is a better term, but if, if you want to think of it that way, are warm-blooded. And so reptiles are the first amniotes that evolved there so they're the okay. basal the base of that tree they're ectothermic and tuatara are a very old lineage um tortoises would be as well but and okay. so when we look at that we can begin to piece apart basically the node where viruses are diverging you know within this amniotic to non-amniotic spectra and yeah so it was really cool we don't know anything about them and also it has a lot of cool implications where we found something kind of really raging in a population for two without a health as well thankfully we didn't find anything too concerning there but basically just um swabbing i forget how many individuals ended up being in this paper i want to say like 50 or just around 50 49 or that's how many viruses but it is also our sample size something like that 49 new species of virus like that's just to me crazy as like as like a uh you know, me like a megafauna person, right? Like 49 new species seems like such a crazy number, but I guess maybe to virus right. people, it's not. I don't know. <laughs> wow. I, and to be honest, I never really thought 
of viruses in terms of species. Yeah, me either. And I thought we were going to get to name them something really cool, and we didn't. That was my main annoying thing, because I was like, <laughs> oh, we're going to get to like name 49 species virus, and it's like, Tuatata Associated Adrenovirus 1. I'm like, aw. Oh. <laughs> virus people, come on, guys. Have some fun. Okay. But that's T-A-A-1, my reptile brain, T-A-A-2. you know? <laughs> okay. Yeah. 49, yeah. So it's really cool, and it basically gets into a lot of cool things about diet, how we think most of these are diet-related. And um, also there's some evidence of once widespread, but now innocuous innocuous viruses uh, in this population and stuff like that. So a lot of cool um, things that probably someone will one day run against the um, genome, which was sequenced a couple years ago, and probably find something very cool. Someone who understands bioinformatics more than me. But yeah, very interesting work there. And then we also... Uh, in conjunction with this, are currently doing a microbiome project on these same individuals. So that will potentially be interesting as well. So I, uh, my little brain is kind of cranking on this, uh, on two things simultaneously. One is the Tuatara genome, but the other thing is the yeah. presence of these all these viruses in, yeah. in the cloaca. What are they doing there? Right. And uh, were they initially harmful? Or did they get, did they figure out that this is a great environment for them to uh, Mm. exist in and you know what are they doing are they breaking down bacteria in the in the cloaca or what are they doing there some could be and then a lot of probably just this is the signature of where we're picking them up if that makes sense like so this is just the end like basically the end of the hind gut so that's that's why we think a lot of these may be diet related because we're just picking them up basically at the common neurogenital opening yeah Okay, so they they could be through the entire yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ele- elementary tract. So. Exactly. This is just okay. where we sampled, basically. Right, because yeah. you can't cut them open. Right, that would be <laughs> <Okay>. very bad. <laughs> yeah. So the genome is kind of cool. Uh, I yeah, that's I, cool. Somewhere in my in the past, I I think um, I read something about the the size of the genome. I think they have like twice the base pairs yeah, of humans, massive. which yeah. <laughs> It's a big genome. So, mm-hmm. There's a lot um, of noise in there, unknown noise. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that's interesting to uh, people who's, who <laughs> compare genome, like, you know, the genome between this uh, distantly related animal and, and mm-hmm. uh, a lizard, for example. Yeah. I'm sure um, there's going to be a lot that comes out of that in the next next few years. Probably so much okay. that comes out of that now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and are they... Um, is this come into play when we talk about, of course, we talk about uh, subspecies and that's really yeah, kind of maybe f- phenotypical uh, differences, but does, does, is that being done too in various island populations are being sampled for that? Yeah. So for the genome paper, they sampled from a couple different places, some up north, some in the strait, and then one that was that, um, well, I said the strait, like people, okay. So Tuatara, all these offshore islands, there's quite a few off the north coast of the North Island. Then there's right. a couple in the strait between the two islands, Cook Strait. Okay. And those ones that are in the Cook Strait, one of those is the massive population that has the great majority of Tuatara that exist. It's, the, it's my study population. It's kind of the study population. Okay. And another one is an absolutely tiny little rock. It's half hectare. And it is one of those subspecies. It's the island that ah. previously was a separate species, Sphenodon guntheri or Gunther's tuatara, now yeah. just an important kind of subspecies, Sphenodon punctatus subspecies guntheri. And so they sampled quite a few different places to try to like get at this basically subspecies thing. And 
it's not going to be, I don't think, to my knowledge, rebroken in to a different species, but the genome paper did find that uh, the basically North Brother Island population, the um, Gunther's subspecies, is really distinct. And that's oh. probably, a, you know, inbreeding, isolation. It's a very small population. It's their pretty rough body condition. Um, yeah, but they did find like a lot of unique alleles, a lot of uniqueness there. And they do support its evidence basically as a, a genetically important population, which I think is where it's sitting now in this perfectly gray area of like genetically important island <laughs> population. Yeah. And because nobody can authoritatively speak to um, how much what difference is, is. is need to, <laughs> yes, to, yeah. to delineate a species. Species is more of an idea than a, <laughs> yeah. than a, yeah. So that's where it sits now. It, yeah, it was okay. interesting. You read that and they're like, and the North Brother Island, here's all the unique, you know, t- what, a 200 or something unique alleles. And you're like, oh crap, here we go again. <laughs> We're never going to get to the end of this because it was originally separated, I believe, based on phenotype. You're exactly right. And then there was some okay. alzheim stuff and then there was like, you know, and it kind of got put back to like microsatellites, put it back together. And then they did the genome and we're like, oh, we're back to square one, you know. And yeah. um, basically they did some, you know, different analyses. And it, it seems to be um, basically about, you know, isolation and mutation. And then it's just a, it's a rough, the, the Tuata on that island are in much worse, you know, condition than like okay. Stevens Island, the big island. Well, like you say, they're, they're, they're south, so they're. They're colder. Yeah, it's the southernmost so, population, relict uh, okay. island population, and it's just like a tiny rock. Like, I, I call okay. it an island, but I want to keep saying that it's a half hectare because it's it's a rock. I've been on it. It sucked to be on. The wind was terrible. <laughs> There's no standing water. There's no forest. It's like scrub. It, it's like cliffs down, and then there's like an area that is probably, I don't know, maybe 0.25 hectares like on the top and then it's just cliffs it's oh, wow. you wouldn't want to live there if you were to so i'm not surprised that you know their body condition like they look different because of that you know and then and, and then you compare sure. them especially to the individuals on like lady alice or um tafiti rahi like islands up north of the north island so much bigger so much like chunkier you know definitely mm-hmm. look different things like that so i think that was the original division reason um but yeah because of those okay. same kind of things the isolation the inbreeding it's a small population um gotcha yeah and so you you have your research study island mm-hmm. do you go out there much do you spend much time out there yeah so i i spend about three weeks to a month um out there during mating season which is the end of the austral summer that's stevens island or takaprewa um, Takaprewa is the biggest island in terms of population that Tuatara are on. It's where like they all kind of live. Um, if something were to happen to that one island, it would be pretty rough because it's where our translocation individuals are typically taken from. Okay. If an island needs some supplementation, that's where they're going to most likely take them from. You know, obviously all, a lot of goes into that, but that's the main thing, right? Like most of the eco-sanctuaries, the zoos, they're all from this population and it's also of course where pretty much most of our knowledge of them comes from because they're in such a density you can actually find a good sample size if i was to try to study mating on for example that small island north brother i'd probably have a sample size of two if that you know they're they're pretty secretive they're skittish they're actually very fast when they want to be and all these things so you need like a really dense population and it would would suck it would suck to be on that island that long to find out there's no running there's no standing water there's no power it was terrible like you'd be eating i don't know canned something 
bringing a lot of gas yeah. and bringing a lot of water. Whereas yeah. Stevens Island, okay. um, it is really important because it's kind of the entrance to Cook Strait, that's straight between the islands. So it has a lighthouse. And so it was at one time fully inhabited, basically. Not fully inhabited, I guess, but like full-time inhabited by like lighthouse keepers right. and their families. So there's the lighthouse is now pet rats and their pet cats that wiped out the Stevens Island rend. Uh, Yes. And (laughs) terrible. Um, I know it makes you want to cry, doesn't it? Um, Yeah. So there's a house on the Island and there's infrastructure there because doc has a ranger because Stevens Island is so important. So it is full-time staffed by one ranger um, or a couple or or, um, like a a pair. Um, Yeah. And so there's basically water. I mean, it's, it's rain barrel catch powers solar the grid goes down for sure um (laughs) but in terms of livability it's actually feasible to live there for a month as opposed to um yeah somewhere like north brother where you are we bring our own water you know like it's it's just bring your own gas like it's there's so Mm. much more that goes into it um yeah and and the island is yeah it's on the middle of the strait so we helicopter there Another reason, a good reason to get everything you can out of every sample, because that bill is very big, <laughs> um, yeah. very expensive trip. And yeah, basically, it's a it's a marathon of packing and planning, making sure you have everything you need. Because once you're there, the only way of getting off the island is at your scheduled time or by pulling your personal locator beacon and <laughs> getting an emergency lift off if anything Uh-oh. happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's interesting. It, it's It's probably not as romantic as you make it sound though. <laughs> no there's definitely a lot of days where you're like i'm in the most beautiful place in the world look at the sunset and you have this real like epiphany and you just you you understand the importance of it all and there's other days where it's like 150 knot winds just smacking you in the face and there's no water oh. in the rain barrel and the power grids down and everything smells like a little bit funky and you're like wow i can't wait to eat more cabbage for dinner this is really great <laughs> <laughs> But then you're still in such a beautiful place doing such cool stuff. Uh, and I'm such a romantic about field work that I'm like, no. oh, it's fine. At least I'm not in front of my computer, you know? <laughs> like, power grids down means I don't have to do stats, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're making lemonade. Huh? Yeah. I'm a lemonade person right. when it comes to the field. But definitely the weather can really suck that out of you real okay. quick. Like, <laughs> yeah. Imagine it just pulls the heat right out of your body. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The wind's just, yeah. And the house, you know, it is a house. We're very lucky. There's like four walls and a door and stuff, but it's not, you know, airtight. Like, let's put it that way. Yeah. It was built how long okay. ago and has been on an offshore island where if you want to get a building material to it, how much would it cost the Department of Conservation to airlift, you know, wood or whatever, right? Like, so the ranger house right. is, is well up kept, but the guest house, if you want to call it that, is, it's seen some things, right. you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful and I find it quite nice in terms of field housing, but if you were... In terms of the weather, it could be better. You know, things could be a little gotcha. bit more airtight. I'll say that. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. So it sounds like you're having a good time down there. Uh, I say down there. Um, yeah, down there, yeah. And uh, no plans of returning home anytime soon? You're going to keep researching Tuatara? That's the big question, isn't it? I'm I'm about to hand in and not too long. So, so yeah, we'll see what happens. If um, I think I, I, I'm really lucky. I'm in a great lab and I have a ton of research questions that for me, I love because they're really directly and obviously impact management of a species of a really important species. So it's just incredibly satisfying. Um, Cause so much research is not like that or, you know, like everyone writes that management implications section at the end of their research findings, but like, does that actually get 
like who is that for you know like and, and does that actually pan out whereas everything we do is it, you know it's just directly applicable this lab we're the main research lab pretty much on Tucson in the world like I'm very lucky and I feel very satisfied and there's a ton of data and samples and other places to go and there's money and things like that so yeah I'll probably be around for a while <laughs> I have I have a feeling um but you know I've always wanted to go to like Komodo or something, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll see. I'm a yeah. more island work. <clears throat> I kind of do love it now. I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. In terms of where um, the research environment where you're at, and this mm. is this is something that, that, that you kind of brought up. Uh, yeah. You wanted to discuss is is the women in STEM. Uh, yeah. Uh, concept, uh, not concept, practice, I should say. Yeah. Uh, it, it, how is how are things down there in terms of uh, not only not only women and minorities in research, but mm-hmm. what about in, in in terms of New Zealand itself too? Is there is yeah. uh, do you do you see the uh, the Maori engaged in mm. biological study too? Um, are yeah. they in there with you? Right. So um, definitely disclaiming all of this that I am obviously from the U.S. originally. So that's my pre ramble sure. disclaimer. Um, and I. Yeah, I'm Pakeha. I'm white presenting for sure. So, you know, that's a factor. Um, I would say that it's a very different, different, different situation, especially if you're from the U.S. um, or used to a more Western kind of Eurocentric method of conservation. There's a ton of improvement that could be done still for sure. But the indigenous peoples, Maori, are significantly more involved, at least on paper, in terms of conservation here, in terms of say over land, land, uh, land claims, uh, but the Treaty of Waitangi, the Waitangi Tribunal. And I think it's a really good model. There's a ton of work still to be done, but compared to the US, it's really not comparable in terms of, of the voice that the indigenous landholders have. Um, and I think that isn't necessarily saying New Zealand does it perfect. It's just saying that the US is really bad about it. Like in hindsight, I'm like, wow, we have so much to go to get to the bare minimum in terms of you know, basically acknowledging anything that's not, you know, quote unquote, Western science as science, as, as knowledge, as traditional ecological knowledge, as I- implementing those practices and things that maybe, maybe don't on, you know, that, that aren't, um, like inherent in our understanding, like the concept of treasured species, the concept of a space being sacred, of a place being sacred, of, of incorporating all of that into our science. We're just so far behind. Um, and so I think that that's been a really eye-opening experience um, in terms of representation and like higher education and, and roles of kind of power. If you want to think of it like that leadership, there's still a massive underrepresentation of Modi and Pacific peoples and all of that still definitely, you know, Europeans in charge of basically everything, um, which is just, again, that signature of colonization that, you know, is still very much present here and everywhere in terms of like women in, ecology i think it's a bit of a mixed bag and this is just from my experience but i think the department of conservation is very similar to what i would say my experience with like the dnr the fish and wildlife is it's primarily male dominated um a lot of you know positions have been held by the same people for a very long time because they're great jobs you know like you don't want to give them up i get it um right it's kind of like yeah. an old boys game if you want to use the term that you hear sometimes like that's very much how doc is and things can be a bit you know rough and tumble field ecology is always has a certain attitude with it sometimes um that is shifting now to just be more accepting of 
different people, no matter who you are, or how you present, um, you know, but that kind of machismo is, is still there. Um, I'm really lucky in that my mentors are both women. So my little microcosm is very, very supportive and accepting where I don't even think about it. I don't feel like I'm disregarded. I don't feel like issues that are particular to women, especially working in herpetology, which is a boy's game, boy's game <laughs> among ecology. Um, okay. I don't feel that in my immediate lab, in my immediate workspace. But the second we zoom outside of that, um, that all goes away, <laughs> right? Like we're the only women in the room, which I think because I've had really amazing mentors, I I and I benefit from only, you know, kind of, I don't have another layer of like cultural or um, kind of race to deal with. I'm white. So that's my only thing that I bring to the table is like my womanhood, basically. That's different from the people around me. Um, and so I only have to deal with kind of that one aspect of it. And so I am lucky that I don't necessarily feel like it's been a problem or a barrier for me. But I think that that's because. I've had really strong mentors at the master's level and now at the doctorate level and in my work workplaces in between that were all women just kind of, I think by chance, um, you know, especially, you know, Dr. Partridge at the Annis Water Resources Institute, which is where I got my master's, um, as well as Jen Moore, who was there as well at Grand Valley State, um, the rattlesnake queen. So those two, yeah. I think, really set me up to coming out of that school of thought and then now working with Nikki Nelson, who is just like a force to be reckoned with and the most lovely person you've ever met combined into one. Um, I'm really lucky, but when it's not just the science, when we're in the conservation meetings, the planning meetings, you know, that's typically we're the only women in the room and it's usually all white. And so I think that those layers still exist definitely here in New Zealand sure. and in herpetology yeah. in general. I mean, I, this is something I'm interested in because I've been fortunate enough to, have interacted with enough women in science mm. who have sort of opened my eyes to some things, you mm. know, yeah. good things and bad things. Yeah. Both. Uh, so it's always, uh, always on my mind to think, uh, uh, wonder how things go elsewhere. And then I, I wonder too about, you know, you, you, you have some interaction with the, with the, the tribal people, the, yeah. the iwi, mm -hmm. uh, and, and what their responses to you, because you're, you're, you're an outsider. You're, you're not even from, uh, it's a whole not, layer. Yeah. yeah so do they, do they give you, do they give you some respect for the work you're doing or? or yeah. How, we have it, a really good relationship with the iwi that we okay. work with, but that is all because of decades and decades of work that Nikki Nelson has put in to, okay. you know, to working with that iwi and, and establishing a relationship on mutual like respect and trust. It has nothing to do with me. Um, you know, I do good work, but I am an outsider and I'm, probably temporary in the grand scheme and the time scales that they consider, um, yeah. you know, for relationships, these are relationships are so different viewed in the, in the Maori world. Like they are deep, they are longstanding, you know, it's, it's very different ball game from like a, a workplace relationship. Right. And so okay. there's a huge amount of respect there that I benefit from being able to enter the room with because I'm coming into the room with Nikki, um, where they, you know, can have these conversations and, have, you know, a level of trust where she can say, you know, we're going to do this. It's the best way to do it. Let us know if you have any questions, like, like, is this what you want done? You know, how, how can we help you? What, what questions do you have? And it's all just very, I think, met in a place of mutual respect. There will always, of course, be times, I'm sure there have been times where maybe there's 
you know, some issues and stuff. I, I don't know. But in terms of that, I really benefit from, from basically being in the room with Nikki. Um, I think okay. coming in, especially you're right as an American, as an outsider, it would be really challenging because we don't understand the complexities of the relationship. We don't understand the relationship and the Motoranga Maori, the, the knowledge, the traditional knowledge and the traditional relationship between these people and this place. And so I think, especially as scientists, we need to make sure we're not coming in with this like colonial science thing where we, we show up somewhere cool, we do yeah. cool science on the native species and we like bounce <laughs> like that can be really yeah. problematic. And so I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Stand back everybody. The Americans here. Right. Yeah. Like we're here to do yeah. some cool science. Don't worry about it. We'll handle it. It's like, well, that's a really bad attitude. And so we're really, I think I'm just really bad. I'm just in a good place, basically, you know, where I'm able to to circumvent a lot of those problems by working with people who have really established relationships. And you got to peek into another culture and, and uh, yeah, it's amazing. A, a, a fairly strong, sounds like a fairly strong culture. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. terms of um, land stewardship and, and, mm-hmm. and cultural traditions and things like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's really, it's cool. I think just being in a place where, in general, the general population knows a lot more about or comes in contact with indigenous practices a lot more, even if they're, you know, of course, there's not always going to be respected, not always going to be, you know, you know, kind of all of these things in the way that they should be uh, interacted with in the way that they should be. But, you know, from coming from a place like the U.S. where it's really just you don't often have any idea about any of that stuff as a, as a kind of normal right. local citizen. It's been really refreshing to see that. Hmm. Just a whole nother element. You're talking about layers and there's just many yeah. more layers. Yeah, it is. It's Very a huge cool. thing. We get emails that'll be like, I get emails that'll be like, I want to come work on Tuatara and I want to do this and this. How do I do that? I'm just like, you're never going to be able to do that. <laughs> and you shouldn't. You know, like it's not, it's not me being like, you'll never be able to and it's a problem. It's like, you shouldn't be able to do that and you can't do that. <laughs> uh, so you, you feel fortunate that you've been able to do, to. Yeah, Definitely have the opportunities that you've had, but it's just not open. It's just not open season down there. No, no. I uh, think opportunities. I think in science, we often think that it is right. Even me making a joke about going to Komodo, right? Like we just think like we can move wherever and we can do whatever, but you know, it's not actually how the world works or it shouldn't perhaps work that way. (laughs) So yeah, you can go as a tourist to Komodo. Yeah. yeah, And I'd be happy with that. (laughs) Honestly, I don't care. I'll see one, you know, Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. You're you're probably closer than I am. I think I, think. I am. Yeah, <laughs> I'm closer to a lot of cool places now, definitely. But the pandemic's made you know didn't really matter for a while. But now borders are open, things are loosening up. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, it's been it's been great to talk to you about all of this. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, talking about Tuatara, Tuatara mm-hmm. uh, is is when uh, I saw this this thing from Emily on Twitter, and I'm like, mm. oh my. Gosh, They're so yes. cool, right? Tuatara yeah. is just amazing. Um, and I'm I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who uh, are interested, will, will be interested to listen to this because it's, uh, you know, we've already named off all the cool things yeah. about Tuatara. So there's, you know, there's plenty to, to celebrate there. Mm. Um, so you're you're coming up on uh, uh, presenting for your, your uh, yeah. PhD. <laughs> yeah, so. the end is in sight. There is a light at the end of okay. the tunnel, it turns out. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, I want to wish you the best of luck with that. Thanks. Uh, you know, never want to say, oh, you got it in the bag, kid, because that's, oh, that's yeah. bad luck, right? It's it, prob- like- it probably is bad luck, but I say it to myself, <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it'll be fine. <laughs> well, you got to be confident, too. But Yeah. Uh, After this much prep, you know, the things that can go wrong, relatively limited. They will go wrong, but relatively limited. <laughs> yeah. What would you just, what would you, um, when you, your PhD will be in ecology? 
Ecology well, what, what, and biodiversity. Biodiversity. Yeah. And so you will call yourself an ecologist or you already do so. Is that I is call that myself an ecologist now. I think, you know, like why does a doctorate make me an ecologist? I had I you know, I think you could work at entry level. You could just be a backyard trapper who's really does like eBird. I mean, that's ecology. I have um yeah. Yeah, the yeah. PhD is like a license to do the jobs you might want to do, but it's not the thing yeah. that makes you makes you something, you know, more meaningful yeah. than you were before, basically. Just means I have okay. an upgraded level of knowledge and skills about something, but I think of yeah. it as a license well, to do the job. It also means that you struggled in very peculiar ways that other people don't have to struggle in. Yeah, doing a PhD <laughs> abroad during a pandemic and all this stuff. Oh um, we always joke that I'm getting my doctorate in resilience is actually what my degree is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I, there's a lot that goes to it you have to laugh or you cry you know it's like well <laughs> oh that's a lot of lessons i didn't think i'd learn <laughs> and if i learned them while studying tuatara it's pretty good yes yes and and think about think about what if you had just gone to um i don't know let's say uh the bahamas to study anoles mm. uh, think of all the layers you would have missed it's true. Um, by not coming to New Zealand. It's so. true. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it it sounds dumb and a little bit cheesy because I recognize there's a lot more to life than our jobs. But the first time I held a tuatara on an offshore island, I think my life did change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. You like imagine. just, there's just something about it that you just suddenly like get it, you know? You're like, yeah. ah, this is what it's about. Got it. <laughs> Rinkocephalian, baby. Yeah, honestly, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> Rinkocephalians. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm Ooh. like, who wants to hear yeah. me talk about them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, uh, uh, I did. And so and by uh, yeah. uh, by that, a lot of people will get to hear you talk about them. Awesome. So uh, yeah. thank you so, so much, much. For, for coming on the show. And I uh, wish you the best with your, your PhD and your research and uh, all, all good things. And yeah. um, I'm going to try from now on for the rest of my <laughs> life to say tuatara. Hey, if the only thing you you do <laughs> is just not add the S, that also is a win, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, right? We're all just doing the best we can. But it is pretty, right. when someone says tuatara, I'm like, oh, nice. But we also do just call them toots. That's the nickname. So you can just toots? say that. Yeah. Okay. The toot team. That's us. The toot team. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, Sarah, thanks again for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks. All right. That's it for Episode 71. Sarah Lamar, thank you once again for coming on the show to talk to Atara. And I think I've completely converted to the proper pronunciation, so yay for me. And good luck to you with your research and your upcoming PhD. I also want to say thanks once again to Brenda Barasa and Christian Diedrich for supporting the show. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at so much pingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, 
please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.